Welcome back to Over Here. My name is Nick Finzer, and today we're chatting with the great tenor player from New York City by way of Phoenix, Arizona. That's Lucas Pino, and he has a new record out called That's a Computer. We have a quite a conversation, so I'll let, let you get right to it. But if you want to find out more about Lucas, you can find his new artist profile on YouTube and listen to some old podcasts that feature Lucas, where he dives in a little bit more into his origin story and where he's coming from musically, because in this interview we talk mostly about the new record that's a computer all right we're here today with lucas pino great tenor saxophonist and band leader of the no net nonet today is the day of the cd release show for that's a computer at smalls jazz club that's today we're recording this october 22nd 2018 lucas thanks for being on the show thanks for having me nick of course. although i think that this is a bit of a conflict of interest considering our relationship and your place in my band <laughs> but uh, I'm willing to overlook it. Well, what are you going to do? <laughs> it helps me stay employed, I guess. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> so the record just came out on Friday, last Friday. Yeah, that's right, just a couple of days ago. A couple of days ago, and that's uh, that's a computer. And that record, when, when did that get recorded? It got recorded um, actually the same day uh, as our... Uh, last last year's recording, uh, the answer is no. We did we did about fifteen. I think it was fifteen or sixteen separate tracks in uh, about five or six hours, and we blasted through. And then it, we were left with what seemed like about forty five uh, an hour and forty five or an hour and a half worth of music. And I said, well, instead of leaving things on the floor, let's let's try to put together two records. And that's what we ended up doing. And I'm. I'm so happy we did that. I feel like we have two distinct, great representations of the band. And, um, yeah, that, that's super exciting. Yeah, so this is number three for the Nonet? This is the third Nonet record, yeah. And uh, it's the fourth of you as a leader. That's right. And so when when did you uh, start the Nonet? I started the Nonet in... I guess it, it, our, we had our first gig spring of 2009, and uh, I started writing for it probably late 2008, and um, had a couple of rehearsals, and uh, had to do some rewrites of the music originally. Originally, I wrote five tunes, so about one set's worth of music, and uh, the first drafts of that music was not to my liking so I tore those charts up and I rewrote um <laughs> rewrote them and uh new songs or just new versions new versions at that time you know I I, ha- I hadn't had any large ensemble experience uh, up until that point I was always writing for about for quintet um and so my first go around was pretty sad I was not a good writer and but you know that what they say what they say is failure can be one of the best teachers, and in that case, I, I think it was. Um, and even even those that sec, those second drafts of those tunes are s- still some of the tunes that we play mm-hmm. every month. So um, they're yeah, fair, pretty I'm kind decent. Of with you there, I'd rather rip it up and start over than to try to like fix. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, and and ripping something up and, and starting over is a is a is a kind of fixing. So. You know, yeah, I don't, I don't have any. Uh, I'm not married to to any uh, failure. That's for sure. 
Um, and, and I've learned along the way also that uh, performance is so important. You know, uh, the, the better writer you are, uh, the, the performance, I think, matters a little bit less, you know, uh, because you might, you might know how to balance orchestration or you might know certain things. But you could write a pretty primitive or sad piece of music, and if you have the, the right people playing it, they're going to bring it to life and make it sound amazing. So I think that there's a relationship there that's super important. And obviously the zenith of that is when you have great musicians who play together all the time, who understand each other, and a decent writer or good writer um, writing for them. I think that that's the zenith of our art form. You know, Duke Ellington or Charles Mingus or... Um, I mean, you can go on and on and on and on and on about jazz composers, but... sure. So who are some of the, you know, main compositional influences in terms of creating the identity of the band? Man, I don't know. That's a good question. Because I, I, I don't point to anybody in particular. Every time someone asks me, asks me that, I kind of reluctantly want to say John Williams. Mm-hmm. I'm obsessed. You know that I'm obsessed with his music. And um, I think that in, in a... In a way, I th- uh, think he's had the most influence over our um, musical culture as a society through film than almost anyone else. But he's 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 drawing from uh, ideas that I just I love, you know, like Wagnerian light motifs mm-hmm. or you know uh, melodies that represent characters. I think that that's what that means, and um, I just I love that idea that a melody should be something that is recognizable and um, even can go so far as to identify a personality or a person or an idea. And those ideas and, and characters can interact with one another. So when, when you're writing a piece of music, you might you, you have a melody, but it is always contextualized by what it interacts with. I think that that's just like... I'm, I'm endlessly fascinated with that, you know, that, that melodies can take on um, anthropomorphic characteristics, you know, like human traits, and uh, they change over time, just like people do. Um, so John Williams, yeah, and which is, obviously, he's, he's a, well, not a catalyst, but he's like a, a focusing lens for a lot of 20th century music prior, just prior to him. Uh, you know Stravinsky and things like this, um, and then and then obviously it's like I I grew up listening to John Coltrane like John Coltrane's like my first record that I ever listened to, and um, so I'm I'm endlessly uh, you know that's just imprinted on on my brain I can't escape this type of sound so if that makes any sense no it totally makes sense and I think it's reflective of what the band sounds like overall, if you think it has like a very, like most of the compositions have a very, you know, broad. It's trying almost, to be orchestral. Yeah, orchestral kind of thing. And then when it breaks down into more into the, like the improvisational sections, it's definitely just like you know, <laughs> 19, late 60s, you know, uh-huh. kind of stuff. Um, so how do you 
blend for yourself, you know, those different influences and trying to still stay connected to the quote unquote jazz tradition with trying to, um, you know, explore more adventurous harmonies or different non, non head solo head, you know, kind of forms. You can't, a leopard can't change its spots, you know, Mm -hmm. so I'll, I'll never be disconnected from the lineage despite others perception or my own best efforts you can't you, you know you can't your parents are your parents and we are the 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 musical children of our of our uh, forefathers foremothers so um that'll always be with us but blending those two styles i think hmm in my estimation, I think influences go into each listener. Whatever you listen listen to is an influence. And then your technical work and your study is what allows those things to, to come out. And uh, I think I've said this to, to you before, but maybe somewhat, somewhere else, but I, I believe that we are like a, a vessel... And our influences are like a the liquid that comes in or the fluid that comes into the vessel. And our job as artists is to increase our technical and intellectual understanding of the music to the point where we can allow those influences to flow freely out. They get all mixed up inside of us. And that's, that's the aesthetic, I think, of each individual is, is different. Because we, we haven't listened to the same things. No two people have listened to the same things or experienced the same experiences. And so all of that goes into the vessel, and as we practice and learn and um, play and experience life, they, oh, it's all getting mixed up and hopefully released in an, in an honest and uninhibited way. I think if you, if you turn your back on, on educating yourself or experiences or you, you hold prejudices, those, those are blocks. They block you from... Uh, letting the art and the music and the spirit of this thing flow out of you um, uninhibited. Well, yeah, I mean, that touches on a lot of, <laughs> touches on a lot of things. How do you, uh, without getting too far off track, I guess, but how, how do you get out of your own way? How do I get out of my own way? When you're, when you're writing for this band, I guess. I can't, you know. That's, that's part of the process. That's just like we were saying in the beginning. Sometimes you have to tear it up. But I, I, my first step to trying to reconcile that is forgiveness. I try to forgive myself, not be too upset with myself. I try to remind myself what it was like that first, that first day that my, I came home from school and my dad had bought me that saxophone. I didn't have any um, expectations of myself being able to play the thing. It was just exploration. It was just fun. It was just uh, excitement. So if I can remind myself when I sit down to, to do something, set out to do something, of that feeling rather than what grows inside us as we become accomplished, which is a sense of expectation, um, then I, I feel like the, 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 uh, the former can help uh, you know, defend 
against that ego that grows and grows and grows. I feel like that. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a game of cops and robbers until you're until you're the end as an artist. You know, <clears throat> the robbers are the are, is the child. Like you know, like they don't want to get caught. I feel like the cop grows all the time. The cop the cops are getting smart, and the cop is the ego. Mm-hmm. The one that's telling you that you should be good or that you have accomplished this. And um, I don't know, I, I, in, a, in a weird way, I'm, I'm on the robber's side. I want them to escape and I want, I want that innocence and that uh, to be able to run free forever. So does that make any sense? Yeah, no, it makes, it makes sense. You're trying to keep the you know, excitement that you first had and creativity or searching exploration like you were talking about i think a lot you know so many of the great musicians that we look up to or at least admire their work in some kind of way have have that throughout their you know culture is searching all the way to the end yeah absolutely and we and i've accomplished that by different feats at some time like sometimes sometimes having an accomplishment gives you permission to to be brave sometimes getting into a school or um, getting a gig, win, winning a, 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 um, an award kind of gives you permission to be adventurous for a little while. But I don't, I don't think it ever lasts too long. It's only a shot in the arm. I think that the much more effective um, artistic identity resides in, in innocence and uh, humility. Egotism does it, it. It works, but only like like a drug works. You know, it's only you only get it for a very short amount of time, and then and then you're you're back to feeling even worse. You know, whereas I feel like humility and the childlike innocence. If you can try to cultivate that in your artistic life, then you it, it lasts much longer. It's much more resilient to criticism or self-doubt and things like that um yeah yeah i think uh i think that's true it's sometimes hard to reconcile (laughs) i know i go around and around in a circle in my own head about these sorts of things yeah but um maybe you could give a little insight to you know a lot of people that listen sometimes are musicians and you know that maybe they think that they want to have a, an ensemble that's more than just a quartet. Mm-hmm. And do you have any? What's your process of like starting to write a new piece for the non-at? Like, where do you start, and how do you get it to where it's on the record? Man, I, I feel like these um, compositions that we we end up employing they can start in all kinds of ways. They can start from a melodic idea, something that you're just singing, or that you you plink out on the piano or your instrument. But it could also start out as a rhythmic idea. It can start out, it can start out in any in any way. It could start out as sometimes I start out with this this idea like I want to feature so and so in the band, and then mm-hmm. I start to imagine how how would they like to be featured, maybe or you know it just takes it takes imagination really, and um, yeah I don't know it's a that's it, a good question. A lot, of, a lot of times I might just start out at the piano playing some chords that I think sound good together and then I might start to sing mm-hmm. a melody over them, over the changes. And uh, 
by the time it gets to the audience, it might be the fourth or fifth variation of that melody and has become more elaborate. Sure. A lot of times it might just start as half notes and whole notes over some simple block chords. Mm-hmm. Um, so how long does it take you usually? Is, is it sometimes is it all at once? or is it Yeah, sometimes it'll be like an afternoon. Sometimes it'll be a year. I've been working on a piece right now for about a year. Mm. And, I, and that's what I'm talking about. It's, I, I, there have been many of opportunities where I could just be upset with myself for how long it's been taking. But then I just tell myself, like, no, that's how long it takes. Every time I sit down at the piano and I start to play the thing, I mean, I didn't even, I, I didn't even write, I, write, write any notes down. I just sit down at the piano and I say, this is going to be the next piece that I write. Mm-hmm. And whatever I remember from time to time of playing it, I know that's the truth in the music. Does that make any sense? Now I'm really speaking esoterically. I think this is, but this is important. I think that this, for me to say out loud for my own edification, which is, I trust that if something is real in the music, I won't forget it. Hmm. Interesting. You don't I, feel like you're going to lose anything? No. You, do you lose yourself? Do you look down and your feet are gone or your hands are gone? Sure. You know, so the music exists inside you, just like I was saying before. With the, you are the vessel. Mm-hmm. So the music is inside you. It's gonna, and so I don't. Yeah, I don't fear losing anything. It, yeah, I, most of the time I don't write things down until I'm pretty sure about what they are, mm. and then it goes through an editing process. Sure. Even even as far as when we record, sometimes I go, "Wow, that section is longer listening to it than." I felt it playing it, and so I want to shorten that. And then it makes, and even to those places, there's editing. Some someone told me that that the human mind's greatest uh, tool is criticism. You know that that um, you, you'll always have when you, when you look at someone else's work, when you look at, you'll always have something that you think could have been better. So you could turn that lens on yourself always. It's your it's your it's your greatest tool for for mastery. I think, you know, you you make something and then you look at it and you go, what do I not like about this? How can this be more beautiful? You'll always have something, mm-hmm. and and then you know you have to run, you run into other uh, pitfalls, which is like, okay, when do you stop editing? Right, you know, you but quickly fall too far down that hole. Yeah, absolutely. I remember. Um, Somebody was talking with Wayne Shorter, so this is only secondhand. I love Wayne Shorter's stories. I feel like so much wisdom. Mm-hmm. But one thing that Wayne Shorter was talking about once was just that if music or art is a stage, there are many trap doors. <laughs> and you kind of, as, as you go through life, you remember where the trap doors are, you know, and... Uh, and that's the point. I think, you know, if we beat ourselves up every time we fall down a trap door or we quit or we we don't learn from those mistakes, you know, that that is unfortunate. I think the point as an artist really is to try to remember the the stage plot of our lives and and see how far we can get, how close to the audience maybe. Maybe we start at the back of the stage and we're trying to make our way to the audience and we just keep falling down these different 
you know, holes. Mm -hmm. So maybe you could give, not necessarily an example, but you could talk about either, I was thinking tunes that came to mind off the new record maybe, give some context or a second way of listening to, you know, some of these tracks, like maybe Horse of a Different Color. Horse of a Different Color is a good example because I I wrote Horse of a Different Color because we needed blueses (laughs) in the the band, you know. Blues is the, is a foundation Mm -hmm. of jazz. And then I thought, well, I wonder what key I should write this in. I said, oh, let everybody pick their own key. I started asking people what key they'd like to blow in. And then uh, it kind of evolved from there. It's like, well, then if everybody's going to blow, then we got to have different sections. So this tune actually ended up becoming kind of like an overture for personality (laughs) in the band. And uh, there's little, little jokes hidden in there. When I wrote Matt Jodrell, I said, what key do you want to play in? He wrote me back this smart, what do you call that? Smart ass. <laughs> he wrote me back like a smart ass. He wrote me back H, which I think H is a key in, so. in German classical music. It was refer- H. And so I, I had remembered, when he wrote me back H, I said, oh, that's very clever. But I, I had known this record called uh, Bach on Blues, Blues on Bach by blues the modern Bach, yeah. jazz quartet. And they had blues in H on there. And so I, I remember that and I went and listened to that. And so I, I transcribed a little bit of that. And his intro, I, I lifted the, the vibraphone part and gave it to Glenn. And, I, and then the backgrounds that he, he plays over is the melody, Blues on H. I don't know if that's allowed, and that might not be allowed, but in terms of copyright. I think it's allowed. But uh, it's derivative. It's derivative. It's parody. Derivative work. <laughs> it's parody. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and it's a hard key, too. It's a blues in B. B, yeah. And he crushes it, you know. But So there's little things like that on there. You know, like when, when people li- listen to Rafal Sarnecki's music, his composition is coming out of... Uh, well, for one, you know, he, he when he first started playing the guitar, he's coming out of like death metal. Mm-hmm. He knew he he could play like every guitar part for every Metallica or like. So, that's one sensibility that's coming out of his his compositional language, and maybe another one is, uh, you know, like Chopin. Sure. Uh, which is he's a famous Polish composer, right? Is Chopin Polish? I'm not so sure. Chopin. There's a Chopin... Is it? I think so. There's a Chopin airport in Poland, in Warsaw. Oh, maybe. Maybe not. I don't know. And um, so there's these like disparate influences compositionally that Raph uses, but I think it confuses people a lot of times because his like great influences on the guitar, like Wes Montgomery and Grant Green. So when you listen to Horse of a Different Color, we give a little tip to Grant Green. We play, we play it's a background... Uh, Grant's blues mm-hmm. and uh, and so there's like little things like that scattered all over that that tune and I don't know I I, I kind of like that the tune ended up being a little longer than I had hoped but at the same time it's like let the cats blow and let mm-hmm. them express their personalities and kind of showcase everybody a little bit 
Yeah, that was a fun one to write. It was that was a fun one to write. So how does that contrast with like something maybe more like um, look into my eyes? Yeah, look into my eyes um, was one of those pieces where I I was playing the chords a long time before I ever wrote a melody. Right, and. Uh, yeah, it was that was a, a one that took maybe about a year to write or something because I was just letting it settle in, and uh, once I finally did, well, actually, I, I recorded it as a quartet in my apartment. I made a, a YouTube video with uh, with some guys, and then and then later I said, oh, I, this would make a great nonet chart, and so then I just orchestrated it for the nonet, and um, it was it was that was a lot of fun because it, it, first it was a head chart. And then you, when you write and you orchestrate, you can say, like, well, I'm going to take the bridge and I'm going to, like, make a trombone solo section out of the bridge. And this is, you know, reharm this or do this. And, I, and, I, and you have more voices. You can start to write little counter lines and, and let things evolve. And for me, a lot of times writing a non-it chart is kind of like putting together a puzzle. Mm-hmm. The more it takes shape the more things just fall into place and make sense. It's like, this has to go here and this has to go there. And um, Architecturally, it just, uh, it's inevitable. That's my favorite thing about writing for large ensemble is there's an inevitability to it. Mm-hmm. It's like, once it starts to really fall into place, you can't stop it. it can't, you can't keep it from realizing its final form. All right. Well, I uh, hope that people will go and check out the record. So, yeah, on all the uh, streaming places. Do you want to? I know there's also uh, some special guests on this album. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that that's true. Uh, for the first time uh, recorded, um, we're joined by a special uh, guest vocalist, uh, the most amazing Camila Meza, on two tracks. And she, she's featured on one of the tracks called Frustrations, which is a, uh, a wordless uh, vocal performance, which she's essentially uh, a soloist, but acting like an instrumentalist. And then she's also featured on a tune called Sueño de Gatos, um, which is uh, a tune by Rafal Sarnecki, and actually the title track of one of his previous records. Um, and she sings a placement of a Paolo Neruda uh, poem, and uh, I think that might be my favorite track on the record. It's got so much going on, and it's yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's a crazy tune. I love it, and um, I love her performance on there. And um, yeah, I don't know. A little, there's a little bit of video game music there at the end. One of my favorite uh, little baseball video games from the Nintendo Entertainment System makes a, a minute appearance at the very end of the. Which game is that again? Baseball? It's called Baseball Simulator One Thousand. Was that like the first baseball game for any? I I don't know if it was. It, it I don't think it was, but I, I think it was the best one. It for, was the best one. <laughs> <laughs> or the best one for you. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so what else is uh, coming up for you and for the band? Well, I don't know. You know, we're gonna keep playing our gig at Smalls. I hope, and uh, you know that brings me so much joy. I know that uh, already we got another record in the works. And uh, we, it's it's mostly recorded. Has some editing to do, and we and we we're gonna have uh, excuse me, a little burp. We're gonna have uh, some some great guest vocalists on this next coming record. But 
I don't want to give too much away too early. Sure. So. Yeah. What's that? We'll be playing around. Yeah. What's that? What's, what's what's happening with you as Luke's Pino? Oh, I don't know, man. You know, I'm just trying to keep my life together. It's just flying off in every direction. Uh, it's playing all over the place and just enjoying every minute of it. Really, sincerely. Well, I know people can find the record at your website, lucaspino.com. That's right. You can purchase the MP3s directly from me, and uh, you can stream it anywhere. Spotify, Apple Music. You could buy it on iTunes. You could get physical copies from Amazon. Uh, if you come to my show, you can buy a physical copy from me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, yeah, I sincerely hope people enjoy it. It's been such a great um, process getting to this point. And it's always so gratifying to be able to, to share. It, it, it feels like a lot of work to get to the point where you get to share it with people. And I, um, it's my favorite part. Um, as much fun as it is playing and making it, it's, it's just so great to be able to um, invite people into, into my little universe for 45 minutes or whatever, however long the record is. Yeah, I, and you know, I think I kind of diverted us away, but I don't want to finish this interview without talking a little bit about what's with the name of the, the record. What does, it, what does it mean to you? That's a computer. That's a computer was uh, something that I had heard. Um, uh, I, don't, I don't know how to phrase this. It was a derogatory comment made about a jazz, from one jazz master to... A slightly younger jazz master, um, and I thought that that was a funny criticism, uh, and the reason why I featured it as the title track is because this this particular uh, professor who uh, was around my schooling ex- experience would always talk about uh, talk about me. At least I had heard that he would talk about me in negative ways <laughs> to, to all of my peers, but I never to me would never, never introduced himself, never spoke to me in any regard and would say things like, you know, he's got a lot of, he would point to his head, a lot of brains, no heart, things like this. And, um, and at the time it really hurt my feelings because he was like one of the people that I grew up listening to. Um, but then as time went on, I realized, you know, this was just kind of like typical behavior. And I'm not trying to reveal identities because I feel like a lot of times when people are jerks, when people are nasty, they get the attention. When the truth is, it's like, he doesn't even deserve the attention. So I, I don't know. I, I found it amusing, this, uh, this phrase, that's a computer, to say that about a, about a, an artist mm-hmm. about a person who's worked and influenced and just produced great music and it it's almost like an affirmation in a, in a weird way it's like well if he's a computer then whatever somebody calls me is fine because you know I love that I love I love their playing uh, so criticism almost it was almost like the best type of gift this person could have given me better than saying like you know I don't like your playing to my face it's like witnessing this person criticize one of my heroes, witnessing one hero criticize another hero was almost like, oh, okay, 
just do whatever you got to do because there's always going to be somebody out there saying something. Oh, yeah. And you just got to just go. Make the thing. You know, I, I remember Wynton Marsalis said controversially, you know, if you've got something to say, say it. Deal with the fallout later. And I, you know, I'm, I'm sure that he's done that many times in his career with, with mixed results. Uh, but I believe it, you know. It's like if you've got something to say, say it. That's a computer. That's what I had to say this time around. And uh, it's kind of a controversial title. It makes people, I've had a lot of people ask me what that means or who that person was. And the music, that's what we got to say. That's what we're saying this about. That's what, you know, and I hope, I hope it, people like it, but I also hope people don't like it. I hope that people pay attention from both ways and, you know, that's what this is about. Yeah, not having an opinion isn't much of an opinion. Yeah, exactly. I feel like uh, indifference, right? That, right indifference, you ever hear that? Yeah. They say, like, the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. And um, so I'd, I would much rather read a review that hates us or read a review that, you know, has some, something nasty to say. I think that that's much more interesting than reading a review that uh, clearly the person didn't listen to it or some shit like this. Um, yeah, I don't know. But so it was, a, it was cathartic. It's cathartic for me to release a record and kind of acknowledge what role that played in my life, having that um, dark cloud over my head for uh, my college experience. Um, not Without giving them too much credit, you know. Just acknowledge that, yeah, let people say what they're going to say, positive and negative. It's all good. It's all part of the, part of the point. Mm-hmm. Well, I appreciate you taking some time to chat and to share all of that with us. <laughs> yeah, of course. Thanks for asking me questions. Of course, yeah. And uh, so check out That's a Computer on all your favorite streaming services. Come to Smalls tonight. Come to Smalls. Even though this won't be published in time. Come yeah. to Smalls the next time. Yeah. Just follow Lucas on Instagram and you'll see his, uh, yeah. his famous quote, Come to Smalls. Yeah. I should have trademarked that. Excellent. Well... Thanks, Lucas, and we'll catch you next time. All right. Take care. Some amazing New York jazz happening. So thanks again for being here. We're really glad that you're listening to Over Here. If you didn't know, we also have a very, very active Facebook and YouTube channels where we're posting videos every single week, sometimes three or four a week, uh, of different artists, their music, interviews, all this kind of stuff. So if you enjoy content around jazz and creative music, you're going to enjoy all this stuff that we're putting out. So thanks for your time. Thanks for your attention. My name's Nick Finzer. This is Over Here, and we'll see you back here in just a week.